Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Jesse Mosier, who's currently the general counsel at Migo, a financial technology company that offers embedded lending and credit solutions in emerging markets. He's here speaking to me solely in his personal capacity. Prior to joining Migo, Jesse was a corporate and financial transactions attorney focused on Latin American startups and venture capital at Gunderson Detmer in San Francisco and at Cleary Gottlieb. In his seven years at Cleary Gottlieb, Jesse spent three years in the New York office and four in the firm's office in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where in his spare time, he also hosted pop-up oyster bars. Can't wait to talk about that. Prior to law school, Jesse worked in politics as a director of constituent services for a member of the U.S. Congress. Jesse's a graduate of NYU, Go Violets, and holds a master's in international relations from the Fletcher School at Tufts, Go Jumbos, which he completed jointly with his law degree at Georgetown, Go Hoyas, where I was lucky enough to be his classmate. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse. Hey, Jonah. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to to do this. And I think um, the episodes of the podcast I've listened to so far have been super interesting and I think uh, really a great thing for a great resource for young attorneys and and old attorneys like me. <laughs> well, it's always fun to uh, to spend some time with with my classmates. It's crazy to think that we're at the age where maybe we have some experience. I don't know that we have advice, but we certainly have experience. But um, yeah, so I want to start like, I'm totally fascinated by your career and sort of the startup world and in Latin America. But before we dive into that, I'm curious about your path to the law and sort of when you applied to law school and to the Fletcher School what kind of lawyer did you think you were going to be? Like a lot of folks, I had no idea what being a lawyer meant when I was applying to law school. And I was coming out of, you know, at NYU, I was in the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, where I basically created my own major, which was focused on globalization and modernization in Latin America. The, the region's been a passion of mine for a long time. And I spent, you know, time studying abroad in Chile and in Cuba traveled a bunch to Mexico growing up and, and as a young adult. So coming out of there, I was really interested in policy and economics and, and the region. And my first job out of school was working for Congressman Joseph Crowley, who, who was um, as a DC type at this point, um, <laughs> was, was a Congress member that was defeated by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. His district covered a large swath of the Bronx, and so I was doing constituent services, direct services with a very heavily Latino district. Um, and so that was sort of the tie to what I'd studied in undergrad. And the idea was always to go back to grad school for international affairs and go into either policy or politics at the State Department or run for office at some point. After you know a year, year and a half working for the Congress member, I started applying to grad school and he was like, you should really think about law school. If you want to go into policy, you know, one in 10 people in DC has a law degree. It's a really powerful Mm -hmm. degree and both substantively and from a signaling purpose. And so I found out that you could do concurrent degree programs, which is what I did. Basically got Georgetown law to accept a semester's worth of credit from Fletcher and Fletcher to accept a semester's worth of credits from, from Georgetown. 
And along the way, uh, you know, one of the great things about Georgetown being in DC is I was able to do externships during the year with the State Department Legal Advisors Office and what was at the time called the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which is sort of our development finance arm here that's been subsumed with other a few other agencies um, subsequently. So the plan was to basically become a State Department lawyer or a diplomat mm-hmm. um, or something like that. Well, we'll hear how you uh, how you left that exact path. No, it's interesting that you mentioned the externship part. I think law students tend to focus on the their summers, which are really important, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that too. But especially if you go to law school, you know, if you're interested in policy here in DC or really going to law school in any big city, the stuff you get to do during the semester is really helpful and can really give you a lot more experiences in that short three year period. And it sounds like you took advantage of that. Yeah, you know, having a three, four month period to sort of work on longer term projects as opposed to a summer internship. My first summer internship was at the Humane Society International doing trade law, which sounds kind of weird, but it made sense. And it was great, but it was like a eight week long program. So by the time I figured out where the bathroom was, it was time to go. Right, right. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. And the the other, you know, good part if you go to school in a big city is you're often, there's less competition for those jobs because there are fewer people who are in that city able to do that, uh, that opportunity. Right. And what was the experience of doing, you know, a joint degree like? Would you, would you recommend it? Would you do it again if you had the opportunity? I loved it. I think the Fletcher School was where I started my four years of postgraduate schooling and I was super formative, made lifelong friends. And my roommates in D.C. were people who had just graduated from Fletcher. And I think going into law school with a foundational level of like learning policy and about the real world and like having a cohort of, of class members who was 50 percent non-U.S. really provided some perspective about why I was in law school and helped me sort of like not get sucked into the inertia of a typical uh, the momentum of a typical law school experience, you know, doing all the sort of domestic regulatory and legal classes. And it adds a year's worth of time before you get out of, get out of schooling. And it, you know, for me, I'm still paying off student loans for it, um, believe it or not. So there are definitely downsides to it, but I definitely would not be where I am today without the Fletcher component of, of this it also adds, you know, a year's worth of uh, another opportunity to do a summer internship. The internship I did between Fletcher and law school was working in Lima, Peru for uh, a U.S. engineering firm that was building the largest liquefied natural gas facility in, in South America. I was doing corporate social responsibility and local community relations, you know, giving out money to local girls volleyball teams and making sure that we were uh, training the workers with skills that they would they would be able to use after they were done constructing the LNG facility. So that, that was a great opportunity that I wouldn't have had if I'd just done the law school part. Yeah, the other thing that that I hear you saying from all these experiences is when you when you got to law school even though you weren't sure you knew exactly what kind of lawyer you were going to be, you had some maybe vague ideas, but you brought all this experience with you and you didn't sort of like leave it at the door and say, I'm now I'm lawyer Jesse. And therefore everything that happened before that doesn't matter. And I think too many people candidly sometimes kind of come into law school with that idea. It's okay to reinvent yourself whenever you want. I'm not saying don't do that, but 
the person you were when you started may help you decide the person you're going to become. Yeah, absolutely. And I still think of myself first as, well, first as a a father and and husband, but second as a Latin American professional and third as as an an attorney. (laughs) And I think it's super easy, especially folks that go straight through to law school and then into law firms to have their identities wrapped up entirely in their profession and their career ambitions and how successful they're being. And you know, I, I definitely started going that that route, and I think it can be pretty mentally unhealthy and counterproductive to have your entire identity and sense of self worth wrapped up in just your profession and your identity as a lawyer. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking before we started recording uh, about our kids and our families and how grounding that can be um, can be challenging, especially in this moment. Certainly, to have young kids at home, but it's also an incredible part of who we are. So you finish law school and you go to Cleary Gottlieb in New York, big, uh, big law firm. Tell me a little bit about what you were doing. And then uh, as quickly as possible, I want to hear how you got to Sao Paulo. Yeah. So I picked Cleary for several reasons. You know, it's a great firm overall, but in particular, they have, I think, what is still widely considered the best Latin America practice group of any U.S. Wall Street type law firm. And that was really, you know, as I said, my identity primarily at that still is as a Latin American professional. So they also have an amazing practice in the sovereigns practice doing debt restructurings for Argentina and a bunch of other places. They restructured Iraq's debt after the war and Iceland. You remember when the all the Icelandic banks famously collapsed. Um, right. And so for me, it was like, this is great. I'll go do two years and a lot of practice there. I'll work on sovereign issues and then I'll apply to the State Department Legal Advisors Office. And that's a great path. Lo and behold, I got to New York. And as often happens to folks, um, I got a year and a half into it. And um, I was doing all Latin America, work, primarily all Latin America work for a, a company called America Mobile, which is a Mexican-based telecommunications company primarily owned by Carlos Slim, who was at the time the, the richest person in the world. And that was about 70, 80% of my time doing all sorts of things from capital markets issuances and regulatory filings, regular reporting to the SEC, a bunch of M&A type work. They have subsidiaries all over Latin America. And then towards the end of my time there, I got the first, they were doing some strategic venture capital investments. And so it's unusual at a Wall Street law firm to be doing venture capital type work because they don't have that expertise or the volume that comes through. Um, but when I was working with this big strategic that that was making some venture style investments, it was a, a cool opportunity to get to work on some of that stuff. But after two years of doing almost exclusively a medical mobile work, which I loved and was great client, great people working there a spot opened up in the firm Sao Paulo office. And I thought, man, that's, this would be really fun to do for a couple of years. And my wife had studied abroad in Brazil as an undergrad and was looking to make a change professionally as well. Um, so we left, we left at the opportunity. I, I'd never been to Brazil when I agreed to go down there. And wow. I had never been to Brazil by the time we moved there and stepped off the plane. So it was um, a bit of a risk and I, I barely spoke any Portuguese and, I spoke Spanish fairly well before I got there, but they are different languages for sure. Sure. And 
you know, when you were doing, I always like asking people what it was like their first couple of years in practice, because, you know, as someone who went to law school and now teaches in a law school, you know, our students come out and they think, oh my goodness, how am I going to learn how to do all of those things that you listed? Can you remember back to what it was like doing all those sort of new tasks? And I'm sure they were not tasks that were covered in either of your graduate degrees that you spent so much time and money acquiring. No, I have a very vivid memory, actually. My first project that I can remember at, at Cleary was for a securities issuance for a medical mobile. And it was almost done by the time I got there. And I'd just been staffed on the team and, you know, fresh out of, out of law school. And I got on this team with an attorney named Nick Rabar, who's sort of a very senior Latin America partner, the dean of Latin America capital markets practice. He was a great guy over the course of my career to mentor me, but wasn't super plugged into the closing of this. And then two attorneys, who one who was one year my senior and one who was seven or eight years my senior. And my first assignment was to go through the signature page packages and make sure the signatories were right. <laughs> so I had like probably 50 sig pages to this deal and I had to go through and check everyone. And I, I did it, you know, turned in the assignment to the attorney who was one year my senior and he, you know, redid everything. Like I made so many mistakes. <laughs> I, you know, I don't like, you don't like learn attention to like super detail. Like you need to in law school at all. Right. Right. So that was a super humbling experience. And basically you start over learning new skills and learning what matters. And I benefited from having great mentors who would take the time to explain things with me, but you have to work it just like in law school, you know, you have to make the affirmative effort to learn things that are new to you and to reach out and grasp opportunities as they arise and make sure that you're finding the mentors and the people that want to teach you and, and help guide your career along the way. And I was fortunate enough to find a great group early on at Cleary to do that. Sure. Yeah. I love, I'm going to tell that story in the future about, you know, the, the, the task that you think is super easy, which is a ostensibly a page of signatures. Yeah. And that's a, the first task you get, which might be humbling and b the fact that there were so many edits to it uh, is probably even more humbling. Right. And then I'll just, I'll just add to that. Like yeah. within six or 12 months of me starting in this role as the junior on the medical mobile team, both the attorneys that were above me between myself and Nick Robar moved on to other other roles. Um, and so then all of a sudden, as a second year, I was a senior associate on, on the mm. client and I got a first year and I started doing the same thing. And you learn quick and you move up quick if you are, are able to sort of do that. Yeah. And I don't want to step on that because I had a similar experience you know, in my litigation career. I would say the first six months, especially after I came back from my clerkships, I sort of felt like I was doing work that seemed really simple and wasn't using any of the skills that I had spent all that time and money acquiring. And then within six months after that, I mean, I was running a big client and on the phone with the client every day. And so you need to be a little bit patient and just build those skills. And when it's quiet and you get to sort of spend a ton of time on a set of signature pages, like do it because you never know. It's very much a next man, next person up profession and you never know when you're going to be coach is going to put you in so you got to be ready yep. so you get to sao paulo you as you said don't speak much uh, of any portuguese had never been to brazil what was it like working for cleary um in this office so I, I was originally meant to go down for two years the first year that i got down there 
ended up being a huge recession for Brazil. And so what had, when I signed up to go down, what had been a very bustling office was suddenly finding itself quite slow. And so I had a lot of free time, which is not something that associates, third year associates at law firms often do. Tried to spend the time really learning Portuguese, improving Portuguese, which, you know, was was important to the job there. You know, I would say at the expense of making stereotypes, my Mexican clients would love to speak English with me, even if, you know, my Spanish was relatively mm -hmm. better than their English. And my Brazilian clients would love to speak in Portuguese with me, even if mm -hmm. their English was way better than my Portuguese, which was definitely the case the first year I was there. <laughs> right. So I learned, you know, learned a bunch of Portuguese, tried to really like cement relationships with the two partners and the senior associates that were running the Sao Paulo office at the time while maintaining a relationship with the folks that I was working with in New York. And that can be, that can be challenging in yeah. you know, what we maybe sometimes pejoratively call satellite offices, but, but the Sao Paulo office of a firm like Cleary is not really a satellite office. It's an important strategic, you know, beachhead in the region and the place where the FaceTime happens, you know, especially in Latin America, where cultures are very in-person oriented and you really need to have the ability to like go out for lunch with clients and, mm -hmm. and make those personal connections. And the work I think turned from a more of like a where I was working for one massive client in New York for the most part, servicing all sorts of different parts of their business to doing more discrete projects for a greater number of clients. And that presented its own challenges because you don't have the relationships, you don't have the context, you don't know all the different players, uh, but it was fun. It was fun and challenging. And then by the end of my you know year and a half there, I was like, man, I'm having a really good time in Brazil. And my wife just had found a great new job at Uber in Brazil, which had recently launched there and things were growing quickly. And so I asked to stay, you know, another year and then three years turned into four years. And um, mm -hmm. the second half of my time there, I kind of converted from an all and everything lawyer, like a capital markets and M&A and private equity attorney into a debt restructuring lawyer. I got staffed on the judicial restructuring of OI, which is basically the, the AT&T of, of Brazil. And it was at the time, the largest private sector bankruptcy in the history of Latin America, $10 billion of debt was restructured. And um, so that was a massive project that I worked on for probably two years. And um, I, I recently listened to a, a podcast that you did with uh, a debt restructuring attorney at, at Kirkland and, mm -hmm. um, really resonated with me how she described debt restructuring as like the last bastion of the generalist in big law. Cause I was, you know, on that project and stop me if I'm rambling, but on that project, you know, we were involved as U S and international counsel to a group of investors because OI had issued bonds on the international markets had equity listed on the New York stock exchange and we had, you know, big picture, a lot of like restructuring expertise. We had local counsel, of course, because Boy had tons of debt in the local markets, both 
debentures and sure. you know trade trade credits and salaries that they owed to employees. There was Dutch counsel involved because a lot of these bonds were actually issued by Dutch SPV financing subs wow. um, under New York law governed documents. And there, you know, was a subsidiary in Portugal. Uh, Oi had subsidiaries in East Timor and Angola. Um, Sounds like a big case. Massive, massive case, massive case. And, you know, went on for years. But so, you know, I had to understand capital markets, uh, had to understand M&A, had to understand you know, I actually got to like sit in depositions because we had litigations in the Netherlands mm-hmm. and in Delaware and in, in uh, sorry, in New York and bankruptcy court and plenty of litigations in Brazil over it. So it, it was a great experience. And um, I, I would say that to put a point on it, one of the really nice things about being in a smaller office is that you see, uh, you don't just sit and do repeat capital markets issuances, IPO after IPO after IPO, like a lot of people in New York do. You really have to be a real lawyer and and be able to understand different areas of law and get up to speed really quickly and um, just challenging and super rewarding. Yeah, it's it's you know I was thinking about it recently um, because someone, a mentee that I've worked with, was thinking about moving sort of to a smaller town solo practitioner role from a big firm role, and I was you know it's not something that I've spent a lot of time doing or any time doing for that matter. And I was thinking how different it must be to sort of be that that general practitioner who kind of has to handle a little bit of everything right. as opposed to uh, what my experience was, which even though I thought I was doing different things, they were all in a very narrow sort of band of the practice of law. Was it challenging to sort of keep your New York-based clients and partners connected to them because you were sort of so far away? Was was your day really different? You know, was it just like, oh, I'm basically the same lawyer I was in New York. I just happened to be sitting in Sao Paulo. It sounds more like it was a really different job with a really different focus. You know, I think to one point you just made here, I think to a New York lawyer who up to that point had sort of been sitting in New York, it felt very different in a lot of ways. But to uh, to the general population or even sort of, you know, non wall street lawyers, it probably wasn't actually that different. It was probably closer to like what, how most, you know, corporate and financial mm-hmm. transaction lawyers work. So it, it was not super challenging to stay engaged with the New York folks. Cause a lot of the New York folks were involved with the projects as well and, and traveled back there frequently enough. But the, the vibe of the office, you know, Cleary's New York office, I think at the time had 500 attorneys in it, probably the same number of support staff. And in the Sao Paulo office, it was, you know, six or eight attorneys and very different as many, very different. Yeah. And would you, would you recommend to sort of more junior lawyers who get an opportunity to go to a, an office abroad, if, if that exists to take that chance? I think it's very case specific. There are lots of great opportunities and if you're interested in other cultures and being abroad and want to prioritize that in your career and learning opportunities, then absolutely. I think there are downsides to it where, you know, if you're not in the mothership, you're sort of out of the focus of, of people. It's easy to fall out of the focus of folks. So if you're super focused on making partner, it might be, you know, set you back a year or two 
this is just speaking generally, not necessarily of, of my experience or, sure. or Cleary specifically, but I have lots of friends who've done this at various different firms. Mm-hmm. And the conventional wisdom is it can definitely help you if, you know, to develop a new language skill or a new um, set of substantive legal practice areas, but it has the potential to slow down the partnership track. Makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to leave Brazil yet because I need to hear about the pop-up oyster bar. So talk about, you know, you mentioned that you were able to both just as a matter of firm approach and business and culture, um, spend some time, not just being a lawyer in Brazil, but being a person in Brazil, but talk about how you were able to sort of find yourself a little bit and and tell me about those oyster bars. Yeah, sure. So in this started in my third year or so down in Brazil and I think it was my wife and I took a trip to the south of Brazil to an island called Florianopolis, um, Floripa, as the locals call it. And one of the few places in Brazil where oysters are, are grown. It's got cold water. It's very much like the Pacific Northwest or or um, New Brunswick sort of area. And we were sitting out there eating oysters. I was like, man, I haven't had a great oyster in a really long time. This is really nice. Why don't we have oyster bars in Sao Paulo? So I went back and sort of when I was like between deals or had slow moments or in the evenings, just kind of looking up why it's hard to find good oysters in Brazil and found out that there are in fact like a native oyster species in Brazil and the ones that were grown commercially or non-native and just diving into the industry, the industry there just as something that was interesting to me. And around the same time was at a food fair and saw an oyster an oyster cart there and went up and started talking to the guys and was like hey, what, like where are your oysters from it's like turns out they were one of the few people that was commercially producing a native the native oyster mm. species of brazil and also sea scallops and they were selling them to some of the best restaurants dom which is like a two michelin star first two michelin star restaurant in brazil was buying these guys products and i was like man this is great like so i started getting to know them and was like why aren't there oyster bars here? And they're like, what's an oyster bar? I was like, <laughs> oh man. So we started just doing kind of events together and it, it culminated with like a, with, with a few fairly formal and well-attended events where we, they brought the oysters and the scallops and I organized some food and the drinks. And, you know, one of them had, I think 80 or hundred people show up and it was just a really fun, interesting side project Something that if I had been in New York, I I never would have done because like oysters are not that exotic and mm-hmm. um, it's very professionalized. And so that's one of the fun things about being abroad in these places where you're not used to is like you bring a different perspective and different sense of like what's possible to the place you're going to. And you also get an opportunity to learn a lot about, you know, the local place and the culture and what exists there and um, melding those two together is something been a theme of mine for my entire career and hmm. i'm just happened to play out in this particular way in, in sao paulo yeah i love that i love that it's funny i uh you know as a as a kosher keeper i've never had an oyster but i imagine i've heard they are amazing but the thought of turning my my interest in food and restaurants into a fun productive activity never occurred to me so i'm glad that you had that opportunity sounds super fun let's come back to the united states part of your career so you return after four years in Latin America and ultimately decide to leave Cleary and, and move to San Francisco and, and go to Gunderson Detmer, where I know you focused sort of in the startup space um, with a focus on Latin America. How did, how did that come about and sort of what role did you play when you were at Gunderson? 
That's right. So I ended up coming back to Cleary's New York office. There was a confluence of, of reasons. Um, my wife was pregnant. And so we were thinking about where we wanted to you know, have our child and thought that being next to family would, would be uh, helpful in a lot of ways. Um, I was also a seventh year turning into an eighth year at Cleary, which is about when people, people are up for partnership. And the clear message from Cleary was, you know, if you want to be considered for a partner or longer term roles here, you need to go back and spend some time at the mothership mm-hmm. touching on sort of what we mentioned or what I mentioned earlier. And then my wife got a great job offer. So, you know, those three things were like, okay, it seems like the universe is telling us something, but I got back there and quickly was like, Oh man, I've, I've gone, I've gone too native. I can't, I'm just not enjoying the wall street sort of, super institutionalized aspect of this and no knock on Cleary at all. I, I would highly recommend it as a firm for any young associate uh, out there as a great place to learn and start your career. But, you know, very few people are meant to become partners at Wall Street law firms. And sure. it's, it's that way for, for a reason. And so what really... Part of the business, part of the business model too. Definitely part of the business model. Definitely, we'll, we'll leave it there. Definitely part of the business model. <laughs> In the course of learning about the oyster populations in Brazil, I rediscovered a passion that I'd had for the environment and conservation and um, and nature. You know, as I mentioned, my first legal job ever was at the Humane Society International doing trade law, and that was not a coincidence. It was one of the things that I worked on there was helping advise the government of Peru on, on the implementation implementation legislation of the CITES treaty, the convention on the international trade of endangered species. So they had this implementing legislation that they were updating. And so it brought me back to like, Oh, the confluence of, of law and conservation. And so soon after that, I started looking for jobs that were sort of impact investing focused, particularly looking at environmental conservation um, and in Latin America and, if what I'm saying sounds like a very narrow, <laughs> um, very niche sort of opportunity, it was. Um, and it was hard to find something that hit ticked all those boxes for me. Right. And I spent almost a year looking and that was making some headway when I was approached by Gunderson Detmer, which, you know, to folks who don't know, is a, a very, very successful and high-end boutique law firm. I don't know if they describe themselves as boutique anymore, but focused exclusively on technology companies and startup companies and venture capital uh, investment and fund formation. And their Latin America practice was was booming and they wanted someone to come out to the West Coast who spoke Spanish to help support that practice. And a lot of their clients were, some of them were in the environmental technology space, climate tech space, a lot of them were in like financial inclusivity, you know, expansion of financial access to underserved populations. And so the message hit home to me. It was like, oh, you can give back to the region that you love, you know, help bring more capital to the region for these young entrepreneurs and learn a new skill set of venture capital, which is, is, you know, an expanding practice area. And moved to California. I'm originally from Los Angeles, so I had an opportunity to be closer to my my parents who are getting a bit older. They're in there. Um, and I, you know, hadn't lived next to them since I went off to NYU for undergrad. Yeah. 
got there and ha- have nothing but great things to say about the folks at Gunderson and Dan Green, who's the, the co-head of the West Coast, the co-head of the LATAM practice there and runs the West Coast offices. But at the end of the day, my 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 passion was really sort of for the region. And, and while I was able to work on lots of venture financings and get to know a lot of interesting, great companies, I still felt like I was not really connecting with the clients in, in a way that I wanted to. Like when you work at a high-end law firm and your hours, your billable hours are expensive as they are at a sure. place like Gunderson or Cleary, you only get to be involved with the the really sort of, you know, the things that touch the cap table, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so around the time I had my, my, my second kid um, about a year ago, it's like, I wonder if I can find something that allows me to get a broader picture and know more, get to know a broader set of legal issues and a company, get to know the companies better and how they actually work. And so I started exploring roles in-house at these folks. I also started looking again at, you know, environmental, mm-hmm. environmental stuff and um, ultimately got offered a role at, um, at Migo Money to become their first general counsel. Um, thought that was kind of too interesting and unique opportunity to pass up. Yeah. I mean, it just sounds like such an incredible path and, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but hearing your story and not just the version that you see on LinkedIn, but actually hearing you tell it and the starts and the stops and the thought process along the way, it's very hard to pigeonhole your specific area of practice. I think a lot of lawyers sort of define themselves by their practice area, but it really does sound like you defined yourself by a region of the world. And each opportunity allowed you to play a maybe different role, but a role in that region. Is that how you describe your practice? Absolutely. And I would not necessarily advise young attorneys to try to plan to do what I did because (laughs) a good portion of it was, it's not all coincidence, right? There was a lot of, every move I made made sense, but you couldn't necessarily plan for every move. And so I definitely got lucky. Um, I've been happy with the people that I worked at, worked with at every place that I've been along the way. And, um, that helps a lot, but yeah, I, I would, you know, as I've said a couple of times now, I, I see myself as a Latin Americanist first and a lawyer second. And as someone who is using legal tools and legal infrastructure to help the region and, and develop the region economically and socially and being able to do that sort of from the private sector as opposed to at a multilateral organization or as a, as a diplomat or as a development aid person living in the region is not a perspective that I think a lot of folks realize you can, you can have out there. Hmm. And you know, the other thing that I, that I don't want to let you finish without asking about is you've worked in sort of three of the of the many classic settings for a lawyer, right? You worked at a Wall Street, big Wall Street law firm. Then you worked at a sort of smaller boutique with a, with a startup focus, but also kind of a startup approach. And now you're in-house. Can you talk a little bit about the differences of those various sort of places you've sat and maybe to somebody who's never had those experiences, what are some of the sort of defining differences? Yeah. It's a big question, and but one that I... I spent a lot of time thinking about, especially as I try to, you know, as you go through this, your career, you should definitely take time to step back and think about 
not just like what quote unquote kind of law you want to practice because you know when i started out i was like international arbitration that that sounds great that's how you do international stuff and then i got my first i was a summer associate at white and case in their international arbitration group and project finance group and i got there and i did both of those things and i was like goodness me the day-to-day of being an arbitration attorney or a project finance attorney is neither of which are very fun to me, even if big picture, they're interesting topics. Hmm. And so I would, you know, recommend people take time throughout their career to like really think about like, you know, how you like to spend your days. And I've done that at all of the, I would say, even at Cleary, if you can divide the New York and the Sao Paulo office mm-hmm. up, you know, sort of every two or three years, I've moved on to a new sort of environment and had to relearn how to practice and what the day-to-day is like there. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about this and to the extent I can draw conclusions or generalities, I think that a firm like Cleary for me was an amazing place to start my career and the rigor and the discipline that you learn in the practice like that with, and it's, you know, what can be an intense and at times difficult environment because the quality that's demanded is absolute. And if you turn in a project that like, you know, references a a rule, you better be sure it's referencing the right rule and you better be sure that you read the rule. Mm -hmm. Um, So spent a lot of time in the regs, reading, reading securities regulations and learning M&A case law and when I left Cleary to go to Gunderson, I think that that training gave me an advantage over a lot of folks who I think the venture capital practice is one that relies on volume and being super efficient with your time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a great way to practice and it lets you serve, you know, 40, 50 clients at once. But as a junior attorney, and especially your job is really in a lot of ways to be processing paper on the NBCA and the National Venture Capital Association forms. And so I think the learning opportunities for your average junior associate might be harder at a firm that has a very specific single practice area like uh-huh. Gunderson does. But, you know, especially in working in their Latin America practice where a lot of our companies were, you know, had Cayman Islands incorporated parent companies and local operating subsidiaries and we're facing questions of first impression a lot more frequently than a U.S. Silicon Valley venture back company or founder would. Having that flexibility and the like legal training that I received from Cleary through my time there, I think was, was super helpful and an advantage. And then that has come full circle at my in-house role at Migo, where my portfolio is incredibly broad and I'm doing issues and legal matters that I had never thought about before. You know, my, my range of topic, you know, I'm the general counsel, so I oversee legal for, for the whole company. And that means everything from U.S. employment law issues to Nigerian data privacy regulations. Mm-hmm. You know, we were lending, well, we're a, a financial technology company. Um, and so we have personal information about hundreds of thousands, millions of individuals that we all have to, that we have to take care that we're sure. not, not losing track of and, and complying with local Nigerian data privacy rules, the equivalent Nigerian equivalent of GDPR. 
to in Brazil, where we've launched six months ago, right, right around when I started, you know, figuring out how our product should be implemented in a regulatory compliant manner, um, getting up to speed on local lending and fintech rules, and everything in between. Intellectual property, you know, we're, we've got intellectual property trademark registrations in 20, 30 different countries around the world. And so like got to keep track of that portfolio. And then on top of all that, doing the sort of bread and butter of like a corporate council, corporate record keeping, board matters, equity issuances, stock, stock options, et cetera. So it's, I'm feeling a lot like a real attorney now where I have to like learn new <laughs> things and and get up to speed. But a lot of it is, you know, making sure you've got the right outside counsel on board that you're asking the right questions and not being afraid to, you know, admit that you've never seen an issue before or thought about an issue or that you don't understand an issue. Hmm. Yeah. What, what I love hearing about that is how, first of all, how circuitous the path and it may look clear. And I, I say this a lot, but I'll say it to you that, Oftentimes people look at a LinkedIn profile and they think, oh, that was the path all along. And when when you talk to them about it, very rarely was that the path. Instead, it was, I got some experience here and I got some experience here and I got some experience here until I landed, until I potentially get experience somewhere else. You know, we're coming to the end of our time. So I just want to ask two more quick questions. The first is, you know, like me, you have two young kids at home and a working spouse. And I always like to ask all parents, but especially dads, you know, how they balance being a lawyer and a father especially at a time when I think that's becoming possible for a lot of different reasons, but also it, it can be a challenge. It has been a huge challenge. My kids are, my older one turns three in April and the younger one just turned one. So almost their entire lives have been during the pandemic. And you know, with a working spouse that has you know as intense of a work schedule and at this point, probably a more intense work schedule than me. Sure. You know, strong communications with your partner are essential. Trust in your partner is essential. One of the amazing things about not being in direct client services at, at a law firm is that my time feels a lot more like my time. And I now am in a place where I'm able to walk my son over to daycare every morning and pick him up at four forty-five, five o'clock every afternoon. And I don't feel like I need to be checking my phone and responsive to emails all the time. Like law firms can, can make you feel. So I think I don't have a ton of guidance other, other than like, hope you pick the right partner to have kids with <laughs> and, you know, listen to your kids and, and treat them with respect and that they deserve and make sure you carve out time. I think, to the extent you can not be trying to do two or three different things at, at once, do that because it will make your life better and your kids' lives better, but it's always easier, easier said than done. I think we're doing okay though. We're doing okay and our kids are great and lots of fun and, and um, can't complain, but it's definitely been, it's definitely been a challenge. Sure. Yeah. I love, I love hearing that from other people because, you know, especially during the pandemic, it's, it's hard to have those conversations and hard to find uh, people who are going through the same thing. But I absolutely agree. In my experience, finding a partner who's committed to sharing both the parenting role, but also sharing, putting their professional life as an important part of your family is huge. And obviously, 
you know, the other two things that you mentioned were defining your, making that part of your identity, right? When you were giving yeah. your identity, father and husband was first. And I think that's so important. And just being present in the moment, which candidly is something that I'm personally working on. And I think we all need to continue to work on in sort of our always on environment. It's really helpful. It does. And it does feel to me, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this since you've, you've talked to mm-hmm. people in a hugely uh, diverse set of practice areas and roles. It does feel to me like the profession is finally making some changes to make being a father uh, a more important role and a mother as attorneys and partners at law firms and senior attorneys a more important role as well. Whereas I think the old line law firms, which have been primarily had partnerships that are are men who mm-hmm. have spouses that don't you know don't work or if they work they've got three different nannies and it does feel to me like there's a bit of a change in in the culture these days i certainly felt that at gunderson when you say ah i'm a father so i have to like take my kid to their one-year-old checkup you know that seems to be coming more accepted um, these days than than it was yeah i you know i see it both ways both in sort of my personal life and in in my student's life and now in the podcasting life. But I do think on the whole, I agree with you. I think that our generation of fathers or the generation sort of quarter generation just above us is trying to redefine that. And it takes time. And it takes time also, it takes also effort because we don't necessarily have role models to sort of look up to and see how they did it. And look, I mean, I had an incredibly successful and incredibly present father, but the expectations that he experienced were different than the expectations that I experienced when I was practicing. And so we're sort of learn we're doing this live and it's hard to do it live because you sometimes feel like you're in your own little bubble, but a lot yeah. of people are doing it live next to each other at the same time. Right. And and you know, I think the role models I've found are are mostly women, to be honest. You know, the women partners at the firms that I've worked at are the ones who are like super great at juggling their time and, you know, super candid about when they need to excuse themselves from professional obligations to take care of their families. And, and, um, not to say that there aren't, uh, male partners that I've worked with who are great fathers as well, but in terms of like who I've been learning from, it's like, wow, if you want equality, like let's start acting more like the people that have been having to do this for their entire career, you know? Yeah, no, I think that I agree with that completely. And and the other thing that I found is just being honest. You know, I think there was a, ten, a tension where if a a mother was going to a doctor's appointment for their kid and they were a law firm attorney, they'd say that in the email. And a father doing the exact same task would say, "Oh, I, you know, I have to go to the doctor," or like, or just I I can't handle that right now, or I'm going to be out of the office. And I think being explicit about you are making a choice for your family and then following through and making those choices, if you're in the privileged position to be able to do so, I mean, that is, in and itself is a privilege and I don't want to lose that, Absolutely, is important. Yeah, I think it's really important and candidly could probably be a whole other uh, episode or two. And maybe maybe we should do that. Get some young dads for an episode. If you want to have a panel about it, I'd be happy yeah, to. I love that. I love that. I'm definitely going to think about that. Um, look, uh, you know, I want to be respectful of your time, and I always end these interviews by asking for a piece of advice. You know, you've you've had such a varied career. I guess I'd be curious specifically what kind of advice you'd give to a law student or more junior lawyer about sort of the career path. You know, it can be a challenging profession in a lot of ways. I think there's 
such a cultural identity wrapped up with being a lawyer. And when you say you're an attorney, that means a very specific thing to non-lawyers in the world and also to lawyers in the world. To the extent I can give you advice, and you know, I'm constantly trying to take my own advice. So it's that you're more than your profession. You know, you are you have to have things that motivate you outside of your your profession that give you value for yourself outside of your career. Because if everything that you're, you know, feeling about yourself, your identity, your value, your worth in the world is wrapped up in how successful you are at work or, or like how happy your clients are or whether you've made a mistake, God forbid, it's not a sustainable, uh, it's not sustainable from a, a mental health or, or career perspective. And so just be careful to make sure that you are respectful of yourself and your time and know that you're more than just an attorney. Absolutely. Well, look, Jesse, this has been so much fun hearing your story, and I'm so glad that the world gets to hear a little bit more about you. And, you know, I'm not sure I can join you at the Oyster Bars, but I look forward to finding a time where we can see each other and uh, enjoy some good food and and catch up and catch up for real. At the next pop-up Oyster Bar we do uh, in DC, I'll make sure we have some some kosher alternatives to oysters for you. Love it. Love it. All right, Jesse, it's been great. We'll uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jonah. Take care. Bye-bye. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.